Well, welcome to 2021, uh, everybody. It's so good to see you guys and uh, to be with you. Uh, if you are coming back to church uh, after a while, or it's your first time at church, or uh, you're just glad to be back somewhere uh, in public, we're really glad to be with you uh, to start off 2021. We had a great uh, 9 o'clock service this morning uh, with the group there, and uh, to be able to do that again. Uh, we're going to be starting a new series today in Luke chapter 3, uh, so if you want to get a copy of God's Word, if you have one, you can go ahead and turn there. I'll fill the uh, scripture up on the screen in just a second if you don't. We're starting a new series called Begin Again, and I'll get to that in a second, but also I want to say welcome to those uh, that are worshiping with us online. I know a lot of people are still uh, being at, having to be at home and in quarantine and things like that. So, man, I'm so glad that we can still connect uh, within the room and then there with you uh, as well as you're uh, wherever you find yourself. Uh, we're glad to be able to be with you uh, as well. As you turn into Luke chapter 3 uh, and we get our new series started, I also want to let you know about another thing uh, that's coming up. You may have heard if you were connected with us back uh, at the end of last year, but we're taking part uh, in some called Saturate Jonesboro. Uh, there's a time in all of our lives where we kind of get a, uh, to be able to move forward. And one of the best things that I've uh, found in my own life over time, and the thing that I've become more confident in is that spending time in prayer, uh, in solitude, alone with the Lord, myself, and getting connected with Him on a very personal level through prayer uh, has been the thing that, as I've gotten older, has drawn me closer to God. And uh, I've also seen God do some awesome things through prayer. And uh, we have been connected to some other churches in Jonesboro. We didn't start this, but uh, uh, it kind of came to us through some other churches to be a part of a citywide movement of prayer, to begin this year uh, just seeking the Lord together, knowing that we are just one congregation of people that meet right here in this location, but we are part of something bigger than that. Uh, and so uh, the, the strategy for that uh, we're going to lay out, but I also want to let you know that next week we're going to have some materials for you. One of the things that you're going to have available to you is uh, a little short book. Uh, I'm not a very fast reader, and I read this in about an hour and a half, so hopefully uh, it doesn't intimidate you too much. You don't have to pay for it. It's just free. Uh, we would love for you to pick up one of these copies next week at the Welcome Center. It'll be available. All that stuff will be available there, along with some other resources. And what it's really going to point us to together, along with some other churches uh, here in town, uh, is uh, three primary things that we're praying that God would do. One is that he would increase the level of humility in our churches. Uh, the second thing is that he would give us a, a heart of deep compassion and love for the world around us. And then the third thing is like Amos, the prophet talks about that his justice would roll through our streets and that he would make wrong things right. And so uh, in order to do that, we're going to be leading up to that uh, and praying through the month of Fe February. And so we need to get started right now to prepare our hearts for that. And so um, I want you to go ahead and make plans to pick this book up. Uh, all of our leaders that serve in an area, you already signed up to get this, but we ordered enough. We should have enough for everybody to have it. So you don't have to be a member here. Uh, you then you don't have to call this your church home. Uh, we want to provide this to you uh, as a way for you to kickstart your year and just get involved uh, in your own personal walk, uh, spiritually uh, speaking with that. And then we're going to outline a lot more details as it comes, but make sure and get that uh, next week as we get kickstarted over the year uh, with Saturate Jonesboro. Um, you know, this concept of beginning again is, uh, I mean, it's kind of, uh, I can remember when I was a kid, uh, we used to play, we had a big yard. 
uh, which is interestingly, I live right behind where I grew up now. Uh, we had this big yard, and all of our friends would come to our, our, our house, and we'd play uh, uh, touch football out there, uh, occasionally tag, uh, tackle football. Uh, we'd play basketball, baseball, all that kind of stuff. And uh, ever so often, uh, playing all those games, uh, I can remember whether or not it was like um, punting a football and it going out of bounds, or whether or not you uh, made a bad shot uh, on the basketball court, or something happened, you fouled one off playing baseball. Uh, the things that we would say, uh, these young boys, out there uh, playing these sports in the yard was, man, I want a do-over. Has anybody ever asked for a do-over? Anybody know what I'm talking about? We would ask for a do-over. And basically, it was, let's just erase that. Let's just act like what I just did didn't really happen. And let's just pretend that didn't happen. And let's just begin again. Let's just start over right here. Uh, and oftentimes, that was met with a lot of consternation and conflict. And, oh, you don't get a do-over and stuff like that. And, but what I've realized is that's not just something little boys do playing sports. Uh, at 47 now in my life, I've had a lot of desires to have do-overs. Uh, I've had moments where I've wanted to have a do-over in my finances and in certain relationships, uh, as a parent, as a spouse, as a pastor. Uh, I, I mean, there's been times with myself uh, where I've disappointed myself. Uh, there's times when I've just kind of gotten dry, and it's just kind of like, man, I'm just going through the motions, and I wish I could just get a fresh start. I wish I could get a running start. I wish I could begin again. And I think all of us at some level have experienced that, and especially coming at the tail end of last year. I mean, 2020, uh, there's a lot of reasons for us to want to have uh, a do-over or to begin again this year. Uh, a lot of us maybe even coming back to church, engaging with church is one step toward that. And man, uh, awesome to take a step toward beginning again, spiritually speaking, and trying to get healthy spiritually, emotionally, and relationally, and stuff like that. But you might be coming out of 2020, and even, like, there's some big things that have happened. I mean, you might be picking up the pieces from a divorce, you know? I, I, you might have a really strained relationship within your family, and the, highlight, the holidays just highlighted that, and you're just like, man, I just wish I could begin again. Some of you, it really is. You're at a point in your walk with God and your relationship with spiritual things and even the church where you're disenchanted with church or disillusioned with the church. You're disenchanted and disillusioned with God himself. You're doubting whether or not God's even there. And you wish you could just push the reset button and do it over. You wish you could begin again. And the beauty of that is this, is that I think if we were all honest that we would say we've all experienced that on some level. That there's an opportunity for us through Jesus, though, to actually make that a reality, that the truth of the gospel that we study and we open up and get the privilege of looking at week in and week out is the story of God offering us the opportunity to begin again. And the thing I want to start at the outset is just let you know you're not alone, okay, if that's where you are. Uh, and maybe even the Lord wants to remind you today, if you're not even in a spot where you're ready to begin again, maybe he wants to poke you a little bit and prod you to say, hey, man, you should think about that. You should take this as an opportunity to consider that you could begin again. Uh, a lot of people have struggled with that. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, uh, at our house, one of the books that's been uh, kind of opened up is this book called Jesus Creed by a scholar and theologian uh, named Scott McKnight. And uh, in there, he outlines uh, a story about where, how we can begin again. And he tells the story of a famous artist, and maybe you know this artist named Vincent Van Gogh. Um, and uh, Veronica and I, we were talking about it earlier this week, and she shared it with me. I read it, and then it kind of sent me down this spiral of the, this story about this artist that I knew a little bit about but learned a lot more uh, this week about because this was a guy that knew something about wanting to begin again and start over. Uh, you might recognize some of his paintings, but one of the things you might know about Vincent Van Gogh 
late 1800s uh, Dutch painter is that he was actually, uh, when he started out, he came from a Christian home. Uh, he started out with a desire to actually go into the ministry. Uh, he had this desire to actually go to seminary. And as the story goes, uh, he did not want to study Latin, and you had to pass a Latin entrance exam to get into seminary. And so he just bounced out of that and said, well, you, you, he was not admitted into seminary. And that sent him uh, through the church, this Dutch Reformed church. They sent him to Belgium. And in Belgium, he found himself in this coal miner's town. And uh, as the story goes, uh, he kind of made himself a, a home there. Uh, and a lot of his early artwork was actually him drawing these uh, coal miners and these people that lived in this coal mining town out in the nether regions of Belgium. And so much so that he ingrained his life there that they actually gave him the moniker, the title, the Christ of the coal mines. Uh, the people locally began to connect with Van Gogh on this deep level. Well, news got back to the Dutch Reformed uh, Church, and they didn't like the fact that he had this moniker, and he was kind of taking on this martyrdom uh, persona there in this coal miner town, and they actually fired him. And they said, hey, we don't want you in that coal miner's town representing us anymore. And those events of his life continued this downward spiral that led him into all kinds of disillusionment and disenchantment, despondency, and it ended up leading into really severe droughts of depression, uh, uh, so much so that there was a, uh, he ends up in an asylum later on in his life. But one thing that's interesting, and Scott Manow points this out, is you can trace some of the trajectory of his relationship uh, with God and with man, his friends, and himself through his use of the color yellow in his paintings. Matter of fact, one of his uh, earlier works, uh, I think it's in 1885, this is uh, in his late 20s, uh, was this picture that I'm going to show up here. This is called Creatively Still Life with Bible. Okay, a very creative title. Uh, but what you find there, the art historians will tell you, is there's a Bible that most believe to be his dad's Bible. Uh, and on the, in the background and in the foreground is a French novel from a French novelist that was a naturalist. Uh, and there's a few things that jump out of the, off the page. One is the Bible looks a little bit uh, untouched, you know, and not really well used. Uh, the, the novel is really tattered and used uh, and looks like it's worn out. Um, they say that the passage that it's opened up to in the Bible here is Isaiah 53, which if you're familiar with uh, Scripture, that's actually what's usually called the, the passage of the suffering servant, which was a prophecy about the Messiah that was to come and how he would actually go through suffering on our behalf and stuff like that. And much of the content of the novel is actually about the suffering of the characters that are in there. And so there's all these correlations and juxtapositions between the two. But most notably, what, what I want to point out to you today is what McKnight says, is he says, you can trace the color yellow in the paintings, and it kind of tells the story of Van Gogh's connection with God and with himself. And if you look at the contrast, you can see it, right? I mean, the, the Bible in the background uh, is pretty dark. Uh, it's uh, definitely in the shadows. The Bible, or the, the book, the novel in the foreground is yellow, which comes to represent vibrancy in life to Van Gogh. And if you trace through his works uh, a few years go by, from 1885 to 1889, and 1889 is when he painted one of his most famous works. It's probably the one that you've seen the most, uh, called Starry Night. You've seen that probably it's just around somewhere. 
I mean, I think this painting, I want to say it sold for like $53 million or something like that. I mean, uh, it's in New York if you want to go check it out or Google it. probably the easiest way to see it. Uh, but what you notice here are some of those tones of yellow again. You see up in the stars are just kind of popping off the page, and you see the moon in this bright, intense yellow up there uh, in, the for, in, the, in the far corner. But if you look, you can also see in the dead center of the painting, what is it you see? If you look, you'll see a little steeple poking up out of there, and you'll see a church. And what you notice about that is that you notice that there is no yellow in the church. There's no lights on in there for Van Gogh. And if you look at where he wrote, where he painted this, he was actually in an asylum in 1889. And he, as the story goes, he was looking out at the stars. And following this naturalist pattern, he begins to affiliate himself and attach himself to the thing that brought him life. And he moved farther and farther away from God and farther and farther away from the church. So much so that when he painted this in the asylum in 1889, there was no light left in the church. There was nothing there to draw him to hope. But something happened over the course of the next year, and it's reflected in 1890 in a painting he did called The Raising of Lazarus. And you'll notice this. This is kind of like all yellow, right? All, all intense yellow. And uh, most notably about this, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Lazarus, this is actually kind of a copy of a Rembrandt painting, they say, uh, where he reworks it and takes his own style and does a few things to it. Um, but if you know the Bible story about it, this is the story of Lazarus in John 11, right before Jesus goes to the cross and is ultimately resurrected. This is when Jesus says, I am, uh, I am the life, the resurrection and the life. But what happens in 1890 in this painting is something that's on the face of Lazarus. It's all yellow, bathed in yellow, obviously, but if you can look, and I don't know how well you could see it up here on the screen this far away, but you'll look, you'll be able to see an orange beard painted on the face of Lazarus. And if you've watched any of, or ever picked up any of Van Gogh's works, you'll see that he had a lot of self-portraits, and he had red hair, uh, and he had a red beard. And what is said to be the case is that he actually painted himself into the person of Lazarus. The women that were there are modeled after two acquaintances that he had there in the town where he stayed, two friends that he had. And most believe that here at the end of his life, there was a turning point where he actually, actually was able to begin again. After all the disenchantment, all the disillusionment, and all the pain, all the doubts, all the questions, something happened where the lights came back on. And yellow came back to the surface in his life. And I share that to, with you, one, because I think it's really intriguing just to be able to watch a, a person that suffered with some serious, serious things in his life and did not have a perfect life by any stretch of the imagination. He struggled and he strained to do what we all do, is to find a way in the middle of a painful and difficult situation in a world where sometimes it seems like God is distant and it seems like we don't fit in and it seems like God's not at work and it seems like we don't even know if the lights are on in the church, if that's the place we should go or not. But at the end of the day, he found hope in the person of Jesus. And it changed the end of the story, spiritually speaking, for him. I mention that to you because I think what that points out for us today is that there is possibility for all of us to begin again, no matter where you find yourself. 
no matter how hard it's been. But the question that that presents to us then is, okay, Dan, how? How can you begin again? If If you've suffered, if you've failed, if you've been through difficult things, if difficult things have been done to you and it wasn't fair, how can you begin again? Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 3 that I think points us to the answer that uh, I actually kind of ran across this past week as uh, Veronica shared with me from the book Jesus Creed that pointed me in a direction of what it means to how we can actually begin again. So we're going to dive into it. Let's begin in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke. I get in verse 1. It says, In the 15th year of the region of excuse me, of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, I'm trying y'all, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. Can I get a little sympathy up here that I'm putting myself on stage trying to read all this? During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, that was a mouthful, but there's a few things that the uh, reason I tried to read that out loud in the presence of others and not privately is because it's really important. Because in, in Luke's telling of the story of Jesus, there, there's, there's a lot of intricacy that's going on. And one of the things that grounds any understanding of Luke and how he approaches Jesus and this idea of beginning again is what he says at the outset of his gospel, which is that he says, I, I am setting out to write a detailed account of the events that surround the person of Jesus. And so Luke, probably more than the other gospel writers, is really trying to get to the heart of some details that the others might not tell in the exact same way. And so what that means in the case of Luke chapter 3 that I just read, and what it has to do with beginning to again at all, is that for some reason he stops in the middle of the story of Jesus. Doesn't he? Luke chapter 1 and 2, this is the Christmas story that we just finished. This is, Luke tells more details about the Christmas the story than anybody. I mean, this is the one we read, to on, read from on Christmas Eve, all that kind of stuff. Why? Because he gives all these details. But when it, you turn the page to Luke chapter 3, he stops the story of Jesus, it seems. And he tells the story of a guy named John. And this is different than the gospel writer John. This is someone that's typically referred to as John the Baptist or, uh, depending on your tradition, maybe John the Baptizer. We're going to find out why in just a second. But for Luke's idea of the way that he presents Jesus, he believes it's integral to understand that there is an importance that happens with this figure, that he has to be included in the detail of the story if we are to understand how to begin again. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe me, you can also look to some of the other things that Luke wrote. And another one of the books that Luke wrote was the book of Acts. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts is the story of the uh, history of the early church. And Luke, the same writer that wrote this, wrote that. And you start to pick up, if you read Luke very long, that he continues to come back to this theme that this is the place where beginnings happen. Matter of fact, you can fast forward or jot it down. Acts chapter 10, verse 37 is one of those instances. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. Something has happened, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. But he traces it back to the beginning. He says, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. 
for Luke, you see it, don't you, in Acts chapter 10. He says that, hey, all this stuff that happened, and we would automatically go to the crucifixion, we go to the resurrection. I mean, that's what everybody's talking about. But Luke wants you to know that it started before that. That the true story of the beginning started with what John, this baptizer, this, this guy out in the wilderness, this is where the story of new beginnings begins. But it wasn't just Acts 10. I'm going to give you one more, and then we'll jump back. We're kind of going to school in the beginning. We'll get to church in just a second, all right? But Acts chapter 13, watch what he says. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the only one. I'm not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. See, once again, anytime it seems that Luke wants to tell the story of what happened with Jesus, he includes John. And he includes not just the figure of John, but he wants to tell us some significance about what happened to this person. And I think that as we look at that, what it's going to reveal to us is this, this is the true beginning point for any kind of change in our life. So with that in mind, let's, let's just drop back to Luke chapter 3 for just a second in verse 3 and watch what it says. In verse 2, excuse me, watch what it says. It says that during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, a few things uh, in this. Uh, there's a few, uh, a few names in here. We've got kind of the history of this. He grounds it in this event, this moment when everything changed with all this history and stuff like this, these people on throne, people that were in the priesthood. But he mentions two names. He mentions the name John, and then he mentions the name Zechariah. And over Christmas, you might have kind of picked up on the name of Zechariah if you went to any church service or you heard somebody tell the Christmas story or, or, or something like that. Uh, and Zechariah was a priest. And so what you have in this uh, verse 2 is you have a priest, and what we're going to learn to be is a prophet. And uh, a priest, basically, their role historically for Israel was they actually represented the people actually talking to God, okay? So like you would come to the temple and you would go to the priest to get to God. And so it would basically be the priest would talk to God on behalf of the people. He would accept sacrifices or an act of sacrifice, and he would go and he would approach God as, an, uh, as a mediator between God and man. That was the role of the priest, and that was John's dad, Zachariah. But we also have another figure uh, in, in history of Israel, and you see this in Scripture all the time, is the, the role of a prophet. And a prophet, their role was a little bit unique and different in that they didn't really represent uh, people to God. They represent, represented God to people. And so God would speak to a prophet to speak to the people on his behalf. And whereas a priest would come and they would reconcile a person to God through a sacrifice, a prophet would come and call them back to begin again. They would be the one that would initiate the work of the priest to bring them into the presence of God. And so you could say it this way, that without the role of the prophet, there couldn't be the role of the priest. Uh, if the prophet doesn't call them back to start over, to do over, to begin again, then there can be no start through the priest. So the word of God would come through the prophet, the people would come back through the priest, and then they would enter into the presence of God, and God would work in an act uh, and interact with the people, and they would get a chance to start over, to do over, and to begin again. And so the question comes then is like, if a prophet is the one speaking from God to initiate this work, 
And if God wants to speak to us, and if we want to begin again, and the question is, how do we begin again? Then what is the message that the word of God that came to John to tell us about God and how we can start over? Well, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, tells us exactly the how. And it's all going to come down to one word. Luke chapter 3, verse 3 says this, He went into all the country and around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, one other thing before we get to the word that you have to see in here is the location. It's kind of like real estate, location, location, location. And the thing about prophets is they didn't just speak words to people. They actually often demonstrated them as almost be like um, live art, you know what I'm saying, or something like that. They would actually do some things that would give them a physical picture of the message that they were sharing. And so you have some things uh, that uh, I picked up in that book this week. It was kind of interesting. It reminded me of some things I don't really preach about because there's a lot of stuff in the Bible we just don't talk about, right? Like we don't talk about the time that the prophet Isaiah walked around naked for three years. Like that was a visible picture, right? To tell a story. Uh, we We don't talk about the fact that Jeremiah, like there was a time where he buried his underwear in the ground and pulled it back out later to tell a story. Like we don't preach those sermons in here. But what it does tell us is they would oftenly, oftentimes they were depicting things so that people would have a mental picture so they would see in a tangible way the significance of the message. And so you have people like um, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and other prophets, Isaiah, they're, they're enacting things. And they would become the stories that generation after generation would tell so that they could have a visible picture. Uh, the easiest thing I could think of this week was uh, anybody grow up watching Schoolhouse Rocks? Anybody? Yeah, we got Schoolhouse Rocks, right? That's the only reason I really know what a conjunction is, all right? Conjunction, junction, you know, what's your function or something like that. Or That's the only reason I know how bills become laws, right, uh, anymore, something like that. Because I can see that. I can hear the, the song. I'm just a bill. Yeah, I'm only a bill and stuff like that. And we do those things. Why? Because I could read that and I could tell you, well, here's the process and the outline of how a bill becomes a law. Or I can watch an animated version of a bill actually becoming a law with a nice tune to it. And which one am I going to remember more? And so oftentimes the way that God would speak to his people were through these pictures and through songs and psalms and and stories. And generation after generation, they would remember and tell them things. And one of the things that was really important from a prophet was location. And so the location that Luke tells us, he wants us to know where most of John's work took place. And it was a place around Jordan, Jordan River. Now, real quick class, Bible nerds, anybody remember anything significant that happened in the Jordan River? Anybody? This is actual, like, I want feedback. Anybody remember? Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, exactly. And that was tied to something else that happened. It was the boundary between the people of God entering into the promised land, right? And so when Jesus gets baptized by John, he is reenacting a new beginning for the people of God. He took it back to the most, one of the most revered stories in their history, and he planted his feet next to the Jordan, and he said, just like we were in, in, in old times, the story where we crossed over into the place that God has for us, I'm about to tell you not a brand new story, but I'm going to tell you how you can begin again and fulfill an old one. And so at the bank of the Jordan River, he preaches a baptism 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, while he's there, if you see kind of the other thing that comes up is, what is he talking about? He's talking about a baptism of repentance. And this gets to that word that I was going to share with you, because the word repentance for us, it often takes on this bad connotation, because I don't know what it conjures up in your mind, but it, what it conjures up in mine is the guy with the billboard, you know, out there it says repent or perish or something like that with a bullhorn, you know, and telling, I mean, you, you repent, turn or burn kind of thing, you know, so, like, so repent for us, I, I mean, maybe it's just me personally, but it has kind of this, I, I don't know, I, it's not a very pretty picture, you know what I'm saying? Uh, but the way I would like to paint it in, in, in terms of this is when he came at the bank of the Jordan River and he preached a baptism of repentance, baptism was something Jews did ceremonially to, it was a, a, a ceremonial rite of purity. They would go into the temple, they would actually wash themselves. Pharisees would actually, they took it to one step further where they would end their houses, they would wash before they would eat. Uh, and stuff like that. Uh, baptism was something that was kind of integrated into the way that they would, they would cross over and say the old is gone and the new is here. And that's why we baptize here. Is it's, it's a symbol, it's a picture uh, of, uh, of a deeper truth, right? But the baptism of repentance basically means this. It means actually saying what is true. That's all repentance is. Repentance is saying what's true. It's being honest with yourself, it's being honest with others, and it's being honest with God. And I believe that the reason that John is inserted in here and his message was a baptism of repentance, of telling the truth, is he says, like, out of all the things you people of Israel, uh, what you need to be called back to is you need to be called back to what is true. And the problem with that, I think, is, is, is that we have a habit of lying to ourselves, don't we? Don't we? And we do it in a lot of different ways. I mean, honestly, if I was to break you down and you were to break me down into kind of components, there's probably about three levels to us. Like, there's the public you, the public you that everybody sees, you know what I'm saying? And everything's public these days with online and stuff like that. Uh, it's what you present. It's what you curate for the world around you to see. It's, you know, like, oh, like, I just take a picture. Oh, I don't like that. Let me retake the picture, you know? Uh, it's what you are maybe to a, a wider audience in Jonesboro or wherever you work or something like that. It's generally people you don't have a deep connection with, but they kind of know you and you might loosely know them. This is your public persona. And what we've learned, if anything, in this century is that the way that we present ourselves in public is pretty important because people make judgments about us all the time. And so we're trying to curate the way people feel about us all the time. But that's not the only level of you and me. There's another level, and that's the inner circle uh, of your life, right? These are your friends and your family, the people that you hang out with, people that got some skin in the game with you. They've got some history with you. You know them. They know you. You actually know their names, uh, like you really know their names and stuff like that. And these are the people that oftentimes know you best, but they still don't know all of you. Because just as the way that we curate our lives and ourselves for the people outside that circle, it's a little harder, but we go to great lengths oftentimes to try to curate the way that people see us, even in our friends and our family. There's things that people don't know about that you're thinking and maybe you've done. You, you, you keep secrets oftentimes about that. We try to curate and cultivate a certain image toward people, uh, even in our inner circle. But that's not all of us. There's actually another level to that, and that's your inner self. 
That's who you are with you. That's who you are when nobody else is around, when you're not with your spouse, not your girlfriend or your boyfriend, not with your friends. It's just you and your phone. It's just you and a computer. It's just you alone with your thoughts. It's just you. This is who you are. This is what you wrestle with. These are the real questions that you ask. And here's the thing why the call to truth is such a powerful thing is that we typically, we try to curate on every level. We're not honest in public all the time with who we really are. We're not always honest even in our circles. And let's just be honest for a second. Oftentimes we lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. And that's not an insult. It shouldn't be an insult. That's something that you come by naturally and so do I. Matter of fact, if you follow along in the story of Scripture, uh, you can pick up that this is the case. I mean, any figure you're reading about in the, in the Bible, uh, the beauty of it is it's not a fairy tale or a fable. And so you get all the yucky stuff of everybody. Like, I mean, you get Abraham lying about his wife twice. You know, you get Moses killing a guy and having to live in exile and hide out for 40 years. You get David uh, committing adultery and what would actually constitute rape. Uh, in, in our in our modern day uh, vernacular, we get all kinds of craziness that is going on. We get all the truth about these men and women uh, of history and their relationship with God, and they came by that naturally, like you come by that naturally. And you can find out where that started if you just go to the first three chapters of the Bible. That's pretty much the foundation for everything because it tells the story of our origin and, and how we interact with God as human beings, right? Well, the way that that came down the pipe, the reason that we struggle to lie in all of these areas and not embrace or tell the truth to ourselves and God and others is because that's what we were birthed out of. Matter of fact, if you flip back to Genesis chapter 3, Watch what happened when the first sin took place. I mean, this is the result of that. Uh, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? Now, they had just turned away from the command of God. And if, in effect, they've made themselves out to be God. They made a choice of their own volition and said, I want to do this because this is what I want to do. And they turned away from God, and they moved out of the protection of God. And as they did that, some things happened, some consequences happened. And one of the consequences that happened, you see in this passage, is they ran from God, and what did they do? It was the first cover-up, right? They covered up. They, they tried to hide from God. And so you get this picture, don't you, of a man and a woman running away from God, and they're trying to hide from God, live in secret, to cover up what happened, to cover up what they did. And then in the story, you get God doing what God was always doing. You get him coming out, pursuing them and saying, where are you? Come back, begin again. And God is pursuing them as they're hiding. And that hiding actually begins to reveal two other things that uh, both these words rhyme and I didn't mean for them to, they just do. All right, so this is not some of those weird cliche preacher tricks. It just rhymes, okay? Uh, I don't think it's clever at all, but it just rhymes. You, what you see elevated is they begin to experience a great amount of shame in their secrecy, and then you get to see a great amount of blame take place, right? Because watch what happens in verse 10. Verse 10, Adam answers. He says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. That's why I hid, or so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have 
you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And at no part in this do we actually think that God didn't know anything that happened. He's actually trying to ask them questions so they would actually, they would actually take initiative to reveal what was true. But when we cover things up and we don't tell ourselves the truth, what ends up happening is we begin to live in pretense and lies to ourselves, to others, and to God. We cover things up, and there is a cycle that takes place where we move farther and farther away from the opportunity to actually begin again and change. It moves us farther away from hope, farther away into a trap. And it moves us into a point where the only thing we have left as a recourse is just to blame uh, to become a victim and to blame others and blame God. And that's exactly what happens in verse 12. In verse 12, it says that the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. So what's his reaction? What's Adam's reaction? His reaction is, well, it's her fault. She did it. And that's what we always do, right? Certainly not our fault. It's her fault. But embedded in this was not him just blaming her, He actually blames God. He said, it's the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. I wouldn't have been in this predicament. I wouldn't have been in this situation if it wouldn't have been for you. So we find ourselves, don't we, hiding, moving away from truth. We move away farther and farther from truth in our lives when God is inviting us in to begin again. And the only way we can actually begin again is if we're honest with ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves about where we, tr- where we really are, about what we've done, and about what our questions are, what our doubts are, so that we can actually turn and embrace and go to God and embrace the forgiveness that he wants for us. Because isn't that what Luke 3, 3 said? It's a baptism of repentance. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so if honesty has to take place, it has to take place at those three levels. Remember those three levels? Public honesty, the inner circle honesty, and then finally, you have to be honest with yourselves. And I'm just going to be honest, since we're talking about honesty, is that oftentimes the church is the last place to go to be honest, isn't it? It's the last place we want to go. Because we have become very adept and skilled at pretense pretending, making everything look better than it is, glossing over things and not telling the truth about things. And we've got our own story to tell as a church about that. We've got our own stories to tell about our individual lives about that. But the thing is, is that secrecy and shame and blaming others, it never promises us freedom. It only leads us into a deeper, a deeper trap. And sometimes the church, we come in and we say, hey, you know, here's what we believe. And we begin to associate truth with being right rather than being humble, rather than being accessible, rather than being honest. And for the church to actually become what the church needs to become, for us as a church to become what the church that we are supposed to become, will only happen if we say and embrace what is true. And that can only happen if we as individuals choose the path of honesty. Because when we don't do this, there is always a cost. There's always a cost. I mean, you see it in macro ways, like a lot of the sexual abuse things that have happened in churches where people were not forthright and honest 
about what was going on and people that were charged with the, with, with the leadership to bring things out into the open and to be protectors actually become the perpetrators of it. And these are the type of things that should not be. And so that happens in the church, but you don't have to be a church person for that to happen, do you? I mean, some of you, you're like, that's, that's exactly why I don't like church. But you've got your own story to tell about why you won't tell yourself the truth about why you are where you are and why you got in the situation that you've gotten your situation into. And not all of it was your fault, because it never is. A lot of things that happen to you and to me are not fair. They're just not. They're not right. They're not good. But what God offers us is that if we bring those things out into the open, he brings us into freedom because he wants to remove us from the trap of our lives to ourselves. Matter of fact, a famous essayist, James Baldwin, in his book, The Price of the Ticket, he said this, whoever cannot tell himself the truth about his past is trapped in it, unable to assess either his weakness or his strengths and how frequently indeed he mistakes the one for the other. See, any time we don't speak truth to ourselves and to others and to God, we actually place ourselves in a trap. We think secrecy can protect us. It becomes a warm blanket for us. It consoles us, and it's hard to get out of. But if you want to change, if you want to begin again going forward in your life, then it's going to have to start with saying, hey, here's what's true. Here's what's true. A word that we commonly use for saying what's true is the word confession. You can think about it in, in terms of like a courtroom scene, right? You go in a courtroom and, I mean, it's one of those intense scenes in a movie or, or whatever that you may have seen. And finally, the lawyer's, you know, kind of going after the person on the witness stand. And it's whoever it is, whoever your favorite lawyer or law book is, whatever that is out there. And then he, he or she finally on the stand comes and says, I confess. I say what's true. I'm, st- I'm tired of hiding from it. Well, at one level, confession just means to admit. It means to admit it. And so here's what it is. This is what's really going on. And in the church, and the gospel should be the place where we're most ready to admit what is really going on in our lives and where we really are with things. Without judgment, without condemnation, this is where we are. But admittance of something is not the end of it, right? Because uh, have you ever been in an argument with somebody, maybe a spouse or something, and you did the thing that oftentimes we do uh, in, in relationships when the tension's really thick and we're just trying to diffuse the tension and we say things like, hey, listen, I'm sorry. And your spouse or your friend, they say this to you, say, oh, really, what are you sorry about? And you're like, oh, I wasn't ready for that question, right? Because you thought sorry was enough. Well, I admit, you know, it's not right. I, I admit it wasn't good. But when you're pressed for it, I need you to name what was not right. I need you to say what's true. And if you can't say it, that obviously means either you're not willing to embrace what's true or you don't even know what's true. And so you have to get to the point where you can name it. And then this is the really hard part. And this is one thing that Scott McKnight, in in, uh, one of his books, he points out. He says that this is the hard part that churches and people really struggle with is to actually describe it. Because you can see these levels, right? One is just to say it, which, whew, okay, I said it out loud. The next thing is to actually name it. This is what it was. But to describe it, that actually gets to the heart of why it is wrong or why it was not right. 
This is trying to actually unpack the details of what it really is because all those little tentacles get into your life of those falsehoods and they all try to take hold and they all present a trap. And the only way to begin to pull apart the trap that we're in is to admit it, to name it, and then begin to describe it. And when we do that, what we do is we own up to it. We own up to it. And we have to do a lot better job as individuals of finding freedom through confession. And we have to do a lot better as a church about creating patterns of confession so that it's normative for us to say we're not right all the time. Because again, I, my fear is that the church in, in, in this age right now, and I'm going to talk to believers for just a second, if you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, is a lot of times we equate truth with just being right. We just, it's just about being right. Make sure we're right about everything. I'll, I'll make sure, okay, are you right about that? Are you right about that? Are you right about that? Okay, we become in that cancel culture, Christian speaking, we, we begin to cancel people that don't get everything right the way we should think that they're right. And what ends up happening oftentimes is we trade truth for a lie and we become arrogant thinking that we're right with God. But what happens scripturally, and I believe this to be true, that when you really encounter truth through confession, I've seen this personally, negatively and positively in my life, when I've been really angry and bitter uh, toward other people and things like that, it's been when I thought it was all about just being right. I've seen it negatively, but I've also seen it positively in my life. When I've really encountered truth personally and I've looked at it through the lens of my own admission, naming it myself, describing it, and owning up to my own sin, what I've also seen is that the closer to truth I get, the more humble I become, not the more proud. I think we can always tell, can't we, that the person that really is walking in truth is the most humble person, not the most proud and arrogant person? I think that's true. I think when I look at Jesus, that's what it was. Jesus was truth. And how is he described? He's described as the most humble of individuals that the world has ever seen. Matter of fact, so much so that Paul would paint a picture of him who said, I don't even consider equality with God something to grasp, but instead I make myself a servant. He humbled, he emptied himself. Why? Because the closer we get to truth, the more we look like Jesus. And if we're going to look more like Jesus, the more humble we're going to become. And if you are humble and I'm humble because we're engaging with the truth and we're revealing what's true, then we create a culture of truth that is about humility, not arrogance. And that becomes attractive, doesn't it, to a world that is looking for something different. Uh, for all the bravado and all the posturing and all the position and all the urging and uh, grasping for power that it's all around us to see that the true power of the cross was one humble individual, God himself coming in the flesh. And so the closer we get to him, the more humble we're going to become. And when we approach God with humility, he says he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're looking for the grace of God, and I know whether or not you could name that's what you're looking for, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the grace of God. And the grace of God actually is what he talked about in Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He says, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is bigger than a mistake. To start off 2021, it would be really easy for me to say, hey, listen, man, we all make mistakes because we do. There's some things that we just do inadvertently. We make mistakes. 
But there's some things we do by choice. There's some things we make decisions about that are not mistakes, they're sin. They're choices. Our own volition, we acted on it. I have done that, you've done that. And it doesn't do us any good for just saying, oh, let's kind of diffuse that, water it down and say, man, hey, the world's full of people that make mistakes, which is true. But there is a place to go where the truth is that says if we could be honest about what's true, if we can embrace it, then we could actually step out of the trap by stepping into truth. The people of God, historically, they had a day uh, in their year. They had a whole routine, but they had one day a year that was the paramount of embracing this reality. It was called Yom Kippur. It was called the Day of Atonement. Uh, and without going into all the detail, this was, a time when, this was a time when the whole congregation, the people of God got together. Everything stopped. Uh, they did no work. They didn't do anything else because what they were focusing on was they were focusing on being truthful. And in being truthful with themselves, with each other, and with God, they would also watch a sacrifice take place of a lamb where blood was spilled, where they would actually, once again, this is very uh, physical, tangible. They would see the egregiousness of their sin, and by seeing that, they would see the posture that they had before God, and then they would receive the forgiveness, the absolution of their sin. And every year, it would build to this. And so when John, <coughs> excuse me, when John steps to the foreground on the banks of the Jordan, and he preaches a baptism of repentance, of truth-telling, and he says he does it for the forgiveness of sins, he has in mind what I believe John's gospel reveals through the baptizer, John the baptizer's own words. Because this is what John himself said about Jesus. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Remember all that stuff I read to you earlier in Acts 10, Acts 13, and all that kind of stuff, and why Luke associates these two? Because what happened when the prophet John came is he pointed to the priest, and he pointed to the sacrifice. And he says, hey, I'm going to tell you, you need to tell the truth, because the priest is coming, and look, there he is. Jesus came, and he says, all, the, all those days of atonement, uh, when you, year after year, it became so routine, you checked out, it was not honest, honest, true honesty, you were just going through the motions religiously. Here comes Jesus. That is the one. That's the sacrifice that will take away the sins of the world. And so I want you to tell the truth about what you really are, because on the backside of truth is the escape from the trap, and then you can walk into freedom. And that's why I think in Luke chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, John, uh, he comes on the scene, and Luke quotes the prophet Isaiah, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill be made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The name Jesus means God saves or God is my salvation. It's uh, from Yeshua or Joshua, which was a common name. It was calling them back to the salvation that can come from God alone. And so when John sees Jesus and says, there's the Lamb of God, let's prepare the way. Let's clear out the clutter let's go to the place where there's, we're filling in the gaps and we're knocking down the mountains and we're taking the crooked things out 
And let's make straight the way of the Lord. Let's make it smooth. Because all people will see the salvation of God. That means that today, what happened that we just read about, all those names I could hardly pronounce, right? Why does in that world does that even matter? Well, that matters because at one time in history, for all time, God acted so that you could tell what's true and not be judged for it. Because the judgment would have already been taken place. So there's freedom right where you are to embrace the forgiveness that comes from the salvation of God. Why? Because forgiveness through Jesus is a full forgiveness. Not partly, not wondering where you stand. It is a final one. You don't have to pay God anything. You don't have to do anything. You just have to tell him what's true and turn around. He invites you in. And here's the beauty of it is it's for all. It's for everybody. That means that if uh, you come to church or don't, you call yourself right now a Christian or not. If you're from Jonesboro or you're from another place, you're young or you're old, it doesn't really matter. And this is for all times, for all people. It is full and it is final. And that should give us the faith, shouldn't it, to come into freedom with God. And so I just want to end today just with that. I want to ask if you would, if maybe today we would just practice being truthful. And I'm not going to give you a microphone, okay? <laughs> I don't want you to be truthful in front of everybody. This is just being honest with yourself. And it's me being honest with myself. And it's being honest with God, taking a chance and talking to God about what's going on in your life. Uh, but if you would, just take a couple minutes. And I'm going to ask if you would, just bow your head and close your eyes for just a second. And just a way, that's just a way so that you could kind of have some focus and some privacy in the middle of a crowded room, okay? And if you would just begin to process maybe what God's revealed in his word today and maybe take a chance that it could actually be true that you could be honest about where you are with yourself. And maybe you could be honest with others. And maybe you could be honest with God today. He did everything so that you could. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give you just a minute Basically, talk to God in the privacy of your own space. And then the band's going to sing, and we'll finish up our day that way. Father, I thank you so much that you made a way for new beginnings, that we truly can begin again. After our own failure, after what was done to us that seems like it controls us, after our past, our false religion, God, our pretense as churches, as Christians, our facade, dressing things up. Lord, I pray that you would pull back those barriers, Lord, because any change that we have or we want to embrace this year is going to have to begin with saying what's true. And I pray, God, that you would create a culture of truth here, that we would model that, that you would increase our humility. We want to hear from you, God. We want to honor you. And God, we want to be right. We'll be healthy. And so, God, would you work in us even now? Would you spend just about a minute just talking to God yourself?